it would be pretty funny if we mine an asteroid and bring to Earth 100 million pounds of diamond. That would suck. <laughs> because like I spent all this money on a diamond ring for my wife and a diamond necklace and ear, and they're like expensive artificially. But if you bring in a million pounds of it from a comet, diamond worth is nothing. worthless. What's up, Greg? How you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for hopping on here today. It's uh, exciting to have you on the show and uh, talk about some of the cool stuff you're working on. Uh, just to kind of kick it off, if you could just do an intro of yourself, I think you'll probably do a much better job than me, uh, you know, kind of talking about what you do. <laughs> I can try. So hi, guys. Uh, name's Greg Friedman. I'm a scientist researcher uh, focused on advanced oxidation processes uh, like using ultraviolet to disinfect just about anything or plasmas or you name it. Uh, big interest in environmental remediation, big background in medicine, uh, etc. So very happy to join this podcast. I guess I'm number two. So it's a tough act to follow with uh, Chris Wing, but I'll try. <laughs> You'll be number uh, three, I think. We just recorded our second uh, guest episode, so that'll be going live shortly. Uh, cool. But, well, uh, I've yeah, only have... seen one, so. <laughs> yeah, only one live so far. But uh, yeah, so uh, I think a great place to start out, we've had a ton of conversations about uh, like PFAS and fluorocarbons, uh, which is like, I think, a, the heart of a lot of the work you do. Is that right? Sort of, I guess, maybe. I mean, PFAS is one of the fluorocarbons that are in the forever chemicals category. Uh, they're around, they're everywhere, they're in water, they're on surface, they're on carpet, they're in the furniture, they're everywhere. They're very good. They're very good as chemicals. They're inert, they're superb surfactants they put out fires so they're very very nice but there are some problems you know your liver captures them so can you break it down like for the dumb people like me that don't know uh you know chemistry and like all this biotech stuff can you break down like what what these like family of forever, forever chemicals are what they're used for why they're created why they're you know uh sort of indestructible and just kind of break it down for people who don't have that chemistry background I didn't try. I mean, the amazing part, like you buy this AFFF, the aqueous fire fighting foam, and it comes in a small container that you add to a giant jug of water. And now the water is all bubbly and foamy and you can put out just about any fire, chemical fire, gasoline fire. So this firefighting foam is really, really good putting out fire. Now, what happens with all that foam? It goes into your groundwater. And these chemicals, they're virtually indestructible, right? They are just like hydrocarbons, but instead of hydrogen, you replace all of the hydrogens with fluorine. So the molecule becomes very, very not reactive. 
It's a really good surfactant, very good at uh, putting fires out, but it stays in the environment and it stays in the environment virtually forever. So this firefighting foam, it eventually seeps into the groundwater. Then it goes into, you know, the city water. We haven't designed our system to filter against it, uh, especially for like shower water. Maybe you're filtering water in your refrigerator or using a Brita filter, but then you're showering in the water that hasn't been polished for this particular surfactant. And then it accumulates in your liver. And over, over decades, it takes a very long time for it to accumulate. But once it does, uh, it's been linked to birth defects in children, a whole host of cancers, lots of different medical problems. So we're trying to get rid of it. And regulatory environment is tricky because there isn't a good way to get rid of it. It's very not reactive. How do you how do you remove something that doesn't react with anything? You can use very expensive filters, but then those filters cost money. And uh, Environmental Protection Agency they reg they're beginning to regulate against it, but the 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 kind of the bar they set for us is crazy high. And so when EPA, you say it's crazy high, you mean the bar for what the parts per million should be, or uh, what do you mean by parts that? per quadrillion? <laughs> okay, so it's not even parts per million; it's not parts per billion; it's parts per quadrillion, which is like zero point zero 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 bunch of zeros one percent. Wow. Well, you know, environmental protection, they're famous for doing that. Like when cars didn't have catalytic converters, EPA said that, you know, in, in a dozen years, all cars have to emit virtually no pollutants other than CO2. And the car industry said, oh, my God, that's impossible. We can't do that. We, But given the funding, given the regulatory pressure, now we have catalytic converters in cars that are amazing. So EPA, very recently, just months ago, they set the requirement that uh, the, the, the PFAS contamination in your drinking water has to be millions of times less than what it currently is. All of us in the industry we're freaking out because we don't even have good ways to detect it, let alone remove it. We can't see it. How can you remove something you can't detect? Well, but yeah. <laughs> there is the regulatory pressure, right? So just a week ago, I was on a webinar where they were a company was demoing a brand new product to us. Uh, which is a high-performance liquid chromatography system that, ready for this, can detect it. So the industry is responding. There is regulatory pressure. Now we have systems to detect. If we can detect it, we can begin to remove it. So, uh, you know, the this chemical, I you know, the way it's famous, I think, is Teflon. So everyone knows, like, Teflon in your frying pans and... You know, it's uh, a chemical that's, you know, you mentioned another application of firefighting foam. And then there's, you know, in furniture for, I'm assuming, you know, like fire suppression or, you know, water 
Uh, so it, it's in everything. Look, like when you're driving your car, especially if your windshield is brand new, the droplets are bouncing off your windshield. So your windshield is coated in some kind of fancy stuff or the carpet in your office. Like the carpet in your office is so good at not getting dirty. Like if you spill your coffee, you clean it up with a vacuum cleaner. So nothing sticks to that carpet. Carpet is coated in fluorocarbons, very not reactive. Now you take your carpet, you throw it in the trash. It's sitting in the landfill, ultraviolet from the sun, rain, acid rain. It slowly begins to break that carpet down. It takes forever. It takes decades. But eventually, those fluorocarbons end up in the water. So it's literally like if you have a running coat that you put on and you're running in the rain and the droplets are bouncing off that coat, it's coated in something like Teflon, like nothing sticks to it. But eventually, the little particles of Teflon, either they end up as microfibers in your bloodstream or they end up dissolving and becoming these forever chemicals. So that's yeah, yeah. that. You know, one of the environmental uh, engineering professors at Drexel, uh, 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 whom I work with, he thinks that PFAS will be the molecule of the decade, as in the enemy of the decade. So forever chemicals, it's a big challenge right now. You know, with COVID and the wars and everything, it's off the, the media radar. I don't watch TV ever. <laughs> I don't really follow. That's you and me both. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. News, I'm not so much interested in, but I'm, I kind of look at headlines. And PFAS is not as newsworthy as the war in Ukraine. Uh, but it's coming back. I mean, PFAS isn't going to disappear so soon. News media outlets will run out of things, evil things to report. Like I just read yesterday. I don't read the news, right? So I just read yesterday. There is another variant of COVID something, beta something, because the alpha one is anyway. But that's not really a big news article. Everybody's sick of COVID. So media is going to pick up PFAS, regardless of whether you're bombarded with the news or not. The problem is there. I've seen some headlines about it uh, over the last few years. I mean, it's not uh, maybe one of the things is people just don't understand it because it's like such a complex topic and trying to understand, you know, there's all these different ones like there's PFO, like PFOA, I don't know if I'm saying it right. And there's PFAS and, you know you know, you know, all the other, you know, acronyms for it. But I guess there's like different variations that have been created over the years. Well, if you look at the number of fluorocarbons, and I think there was a study done in California, they looked at all of the fluorocarbons in the groundwater in California, and they identified over 5,000 compounds. Wow. So are they bad for you? I don't know, because 
these are compounds that accumulate in your liver over a very, very long time. So it takes years. And then which compound would you specifically look for? So the one you mentioned, PFOA, that's perfluorectinoic acid. PFOA is one out of 5,000 that has been well studied, and it's a problem. Now, I believe that's a nine-carbon molecule, and its twin brother, that's just eight carbons, one carbon less, has not been studied as well. And one carbon more has also not been studied as well. Does it cause birth defects? We don't know because that's a very, very expensive study to perform. But it's probably not very good for you. So one of the challenges to uh, the kids going in, kids in college right now studying chemistry, one of the challenges for them is how do you replace fluorocarbons? Because you own a business. When you're buying carpet for your business, you want carpet that takes a lot less effort to clean, right? Because it's going to save you money. The office will look cleaner. So you're going to opt for buying that carpet. But that carpet today is coated in fluorocarbons. So going into the future, not only do we need to clean the water that we already contaminated, we also need to create new solutions. Like, I like my windshield to be safe in the rain. I'd like to see as I'm driving, right? <laughs> it's so always a plus. <laughs> it's always a plus. So you might want to coat the windshield in something that repels water. What is it? There are a number of solutions. Like you can use uh, different plasma surface modification technologies, but they're very expensive. So it's... It's a big challenge. It's a challenge that will take a lot of the government funding. So I think one of the topics you wanted to discuss is the difference between industry funding and government funding. This is the type of stuff that the governments need to step in, right? Like the water utility. I mean, if you look at like Philadelphia Water Company or uh, American Water across the river from us, they're relatively small, meaning... You can't ask them to solve a problem that's affecting the entire planet. Like they found these fluorocarbons on, in the snow on Tibet mountains. It's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. So who's going to pay for that? It has to be government funding. Yeah. And then who's going to invest into... We need thousands, tens of thousands of new chemists who will finish their degrees, go into the industry and invent new stuff. That's a government investment. So one of the, I, I really like what Biden is trying to do with reducing the barrier for entry into universities. Uh, reducing college tuitions, which are ridiculous now. But we need to invest into, if we want to get rid of contaminants in our water, we need to create products that don't contaminate our, our water. They, they haven't been invented yet. So yeah, many, many, many challenges there. So I, I want to just, uh, I have a 
side tangent I want to go on and I want to start by just describing your lab. So you have a really awesome lab in uh, Philadelphia. Everything's painted purple. Uh, and we'll, <laughs> we'll get to why it's painted purple in a minute. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got like all these different rooms. You have a, a room for like, you know, exploring super bugs. You have a 3D printing room and you have like a CNC machine room. Uh, you have like all these different, uh, you know, rooms with like power supplies and plasma equipment. And uh, it's just like walking through. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's too much to take in all at once. And, you know, obviously, like you're really passionate about it. So you're trying to explain everything. And by the time I do like an hour long tour, my head's spinning. I have no idea what I just saw. But uh, one of the things you showed me, I was in there one time and you showed me this thing and you're like, hey, we can use this to uh, remove PFAS from water or we could actually uh, just make cat litter boxes smell better. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so th those are they're standing next to each other. They're not the same system. Right. Uh, I mean, we, you know, back to the intro. Right. So we are a small research and development company. We're never going to be big. You don't need that many of us. Just a dozen engineers can do a lot of damage given time, funding, and equipment. And we have funding and we have equipment. Uh, the lab's purple. Purple is the color of plasma. And uh, apparently I like purple. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I'm at home now. I Wife didn't let me paint this purple. I would otherwise. <laughs> Um, I can see that too. <laughs> mm -hmm. If I if I tried to make a case to paint the uh, the house purple with with my wife, I think she would veto that one too. <laughs> it depends on the shade of purple, right? There are like so many. I mean, your lab uh, is like very purple, <laughs> very very purple. It was funny. We were moving into that lab in the middle of COVID, and I had five million things on my plate. It was a lot of work. We were trying to manufacture a hundred systems. And then the landlord calls me. What we need to repaint the walls, what color? I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> he said, Well, you need to pick the color. I said, okay, plasma is purple, so paint it purple. And he's like, light or dark? Oh my God. Uh, just pick a color. Uh light, I guess. I don't know. And then he calls me, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, there is a highlight color too. So we went with light purple and dark purple. <laughs> That's That was it. And when I saw it, I think I told you this story. When when my business partner, Charles, and I, when we walked into the, 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 the lab the first time, it was pretty shocking. But we get used to it. Like, look at our website now. It's all purple and it makes images really stand out. So I like it. But it really, you know, purple is, plasma is light or plasma makes a lot of light. Most of the lighting systems, especially outdoor, big lighting systems, they're all plasma. So plasma emits a lot of light. And purple is the color that nitrogen releases. So if you make plasma in air, it's going to be dominated by the light emission of nitrogen, which is purple. Oxygen is white, you know, neon lamps, right? Like neon is kind of reddish, purplish, pure neon. So it's color that comes from plasma. So purple is air plasmas. And that's our 
kind of specialty. We work in atmospheric pressure systems. We work in plasmas that are easier to commercialize, which is atmospheric pressure air plasma systems. But yeah, that's a specialty. But, uh, uh, you know, we use plasma not to destroy PFAS directly in water, but we use uh, plasma to regenerate activated carbon that was used for PFAS filtration. This way, you know, today, Philadelphia actually uses activated carbon to filter these forever chemicals out of your water. So you don't have to worry Philadelphia is already taking care of this. Problem is they take that activated carbon and they have they can't do anything with it. United States currently, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't really regenerate activated carbon, at least not on the water utility scale. Uh, they do in Europe, they do in Asia, but the United States just puts it back in the landfill, kind of completing the, the circle of problems. Uh, we're trying to, we are among a number of companies that are trying to develop technologies to regenerate activated, activated carbon. So what do you do to talk about what that means? Like, what do you, how do you reactivate carbon or how do you remove the, uh, the PFAS out of the carbon so it can be reused to filter more water? Using layman's terms. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody here is going to be, uh, at the, the level of, uh, chemistry and, uh, you know, the sci scientific background that you have. So we'll keep it, you know, everything layman's terms here today. Yeah, it's easy. It's actually really easy. So you've seen charcoal, like activated carbon, like when you do your grilling using natural wood, there is charcoal. So you can use the charcoal to filter water. It's very, very porous material. It's very good at trapping dirt, dust, organic crap, PFAS. And then after you're done, you're left with this carbon it's called granular activated carbon but what it is it's just charcoal that's compressed into these little granules and they're dirty so what do you do with them you can throw them in a the trash but then you'll just complete the, the, the cycle you shouldn't do that that's what we do today but we should figure out a better solution you can take it and you can heat it up with you have to heat it up a lot. We're talking like at least a thousand Fahrenheit. And probably you want to heat it in an atmosphere with very little or no oxygen because you don't want it to catch on fire. You heat it up and you thermally destroy those contaminants. It works really well. And you can actually destroy the, uh, the PFAS at that temperature? You can destroy PFAS at that, sometimes higher temperatures. It depends. Short answer, yes. Isn't, Long answer, isn't uh, this PFAS chemical, isn't it used to coat, uh, you know, like cap space capsules when they're re-entering the atmosphere to keep them from burning? Or am I thinking of the wrong, uh, the wrong chemical? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I would coat the space capsules on some kind of ceramics to prevent thermal degradation, something more thermally stable. Maybe they might use fluorocarbons for friction. I'm not sure. Okay. Do yeah, I, I thought I heard it somewhere, but don't don't quote me on anything that has to do with chemistry because I'm not uh, 
I'm not your guy on chemistry. So <laughs> look, fluorocarbons are so good and they have so many uses that I would not be surprised if they're part of the coating of the tip of the rocket for friction purposes. Uh, we're trying not to use any fluorocarbons in our coating technology development stuff. But back to activated carbon. So you take it, you heat it up. You heat it up, you keep it hot for a few hours, and it now it's clean. And now you can use it again. Problem is, any oxygen present will burn some of that carbon, so you have losses. Also, keeping things at elevated temperatures for prolonged times, how do you keep things hot? You probably, how do you keep things hot on a large scale? Burn methane. So if you're burning natural gas to heat things, you're releasing enormous amounts of CO2, which is an issue, right? So that's one of the issues that our company is trying to address is CO2 conversion, but back to reactivation of activated carbon. So you can thermally reactivate it, but the cost ends up being about 30 cents per pound. So you buy brand new activated carbon, just below $2 a pound. And once it's used up, you need to pay 30 cents to reactivate it. Or you need to pay some amount of money, let's say 50 cents to get rid of it, to put it in the landfill. So there, there are costs associated with everything. So reactivation is not very attractive because it's expensive. Well, it still if sounds you, cheaper though. If it's th- 30 cents a pound to reactivate, 50 cents a pound to dispose and $2 a pound to purchase new, why Why is it, why, you know, it seems economically favorable to reactivate. Why aren't we doing that? Um, but you need to have a facility so there's CAPEX and OPEX. So there's capital expense and operating expense. I told you the operating expense, but there's also capital expense. You need to build a reactivation plant. You need to hire engineers to work in that reactivation plant. You also need to have space for the reactivation plant. So small water utility can't afford it. Mm. I see. Okay. So you're you're talking about just actually like once you have the facility stood up and running, that's what it costs to process it. But then you still need all the equipment and uh, need to invest in the infrastructure to do so. And when you're talking about a huge water utility, they aren't regulated yet. They're not forced to do that. So there is a company, you walk into a utility, major utility company and you say, you know, with a $200 million investment, we will over 10 years save you money. Sounds attractive, but then you have to convince executives to change the ways they've been doing things for a few decades already. It's challenging. So this is where government regulation needs to come in. Do you think this will be a private industry that spins up over the next decade or so of uh, these, you know, facilities that are reactivating carbon and getting these, you know, costs down to 30 cents per pound of carbon reactivation? And it's uh, a new industry that could be budding uh, in the coming years. You know, I'll answer with a story. (laughs) 
if you read newspapers from a hundred years ago, there was a big boom of news articles that New York, Manhattan, Manhattan is drowning in horse shit. <laughs> and few more months of this or few more years and the horse manure will reach the level of the first floor windows. Oh my God, this is a disaster. We're all going to die. And then cars came. And what year was that? I don't remember. 1800s honestly. or something. This is, well, when did Ford F1 build, or when did Henry Ford build his Ford F1? That was, yeah, late 1800s or something. Here, mm. Let me Google that real quick. Let's get some uh, fact checking <laughs> going here. So around that time, cars show up. So you have a problem of manure and, you know, the city is trying to figure out how to remove it from the streets more efficiently and maybe it's 1948 is that right that makes sense actually yeah so 1948 to 1952 mm -hmm. was the model years the production started in november 27th 1947 so not 1800s this wow. is this is quite recent when we were driving horses in downtown philly but the it's in your mind, that's that problem was solved almost overnight. You're drowning in horse manure, and the next day, you're dealing with traffic problems from cars. The problem of horse manure disappeared because horses disappeared. So regeneration of activated carbon is a patch are there going to be companies investing in uh regeneration of filter media i'm sure what i am as a scientist what i'm hoping for what i'm working towards uh is something new there will be a breakthrough some very talented young girl or boy will invent something and i don't know what that is so rather, than, rather than trying to figure out what to do with the horse shit we just get rid of the uh horses we just get rid of the horses and the problem mm -hmm. goes away yeah interesting so this that's the that's the best way that I've, I've heard you explain it so far uh makes a lot of sense to me it's like how do we instead of continuing to use these chemicals and figure out how to process the outcome of using these chemicals, then we just stop using them and we replace them with something better that doesn't have the same issue. Well, like for example, so carbon is the building block of life. So hydrocarbons and fluorocarbons, they're similar molecules. So your body interacts with these forever chemicals. But if we switch to silicon-based materials, your body doesn't interact with them, but maybe some of them have the similar uh, properties. So maybe we can use silicon-based stuff for firefighting foam, for carpets, for car windshield coatings, for racket nose coatings. And all of a sudden, fluorocarbons just disappear. Yeah, there will be, you know, like the horse, uh, not everybody got rid of their horse right away. So maybe what's the... How long does a horse live? A decade. 
So maybe somebody who bought a brand new young horse today would keep it for another 10 years. But really, the problem of manure in New York probably took 10 years to disappear. My point is, if there is a, a new invention, that is the one that will take the world by storm rather than patch technology. So if you invest into a new power plant or a new plant that regenerates activated carbon, are you going to make trillion, quadrillion dollars? No. no. You, can, you can still be pretty wealthy uh, building patches. So what we're talking about, again, I keep on coming back to the manure thing, but like, you know, you and I are discussing building a manure processing plant when the horses are about to disappear. Yeah, interesting. And uh, so, uh, you know, the 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 kind of example you use there. So we got rid of the horses, you know, caught it fixed the ship problem. But then there's uh, now there's the cars. Now we have new problems. We have traffic problems. We have, you know, lead problems in the air. So, you know, like w whatever the next thing is, you know, it's probably going to have its own set of, you know, uh, side effects and issues that come out of it is my guess. Absolutely. I mean, look at the car industry. We had such amazing contenders uh, because, you know, we're running out of fossil fuel. We've been running out of fossil fuel for as long as I've been alive. But aside from that, so I believed that hydrogen would win. So I really thought that all of the cars on the road will be powered by hydrogen. And somehow I was totally wrong. I own now an electric, fully electric car. The United States is heavily investing in electric infrastructure. Everything is electric. Wait, do we have enough precious metals to make the batteries to transition all of the vehicles to electricity? I'm, I'm not sure. We don't right now, but then we can mine asteroids. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, you know, it would be pretty funny if we mine an asteroid and bring to Earth 100 million pounds of diamond. That would suck. <laughs> because, like, I spent all this money on the diamond ring for my wife and a diamond necklace and the ear. And they're, like, expensive artificially. But if you bring in a million pounds of it from a comet, Diamond no, worth is nothing. worthless. Well, the funny thing too, I mean, I, you know, it's a total side tangent, but you know, the whole De Beers thing, I think there's a, uh, you know, like keeping the supply low so that the demand is always high. It's like almost, there's probably enough diamonds on earth already. You know, there's <laughs> lab grown diamonds. There's uh, I heard a story that the, um, you know, this goes to like the power of marketing. I heard a story that uh, the, uh, when, when lab grown diamonds started coming out, uh, the uh, I think it was the De Beers Corporation did some sort of a PR campaign where they manufactured, uh, you know, they invested, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into man manufacturing really low quality subpar uh, lab grown diamonds and flooded the market with this really crappy supply of lab grown diamonds just to make the public perception feel that lab grown diamonds were subpar quality, even though you could manufacture good quality 
lab grown diamonds. They just flooded the market with sub quality ones so that, you know, people's perception was that like the natural occurrence of diamonds were just way higher quality than what could be created in a lab. Well, it's marketing and media for you, right? So if you own a newspaper, you can do a lot of damage or good things, I guess. But nobody ever does good things when they own a newspaper. <laughs> it, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I'm not familiar with that particular story. But if I owned a diamond mine, I would probably do something exactly like that. Lab-grown diamonds are very high quality, but I have no idea the cost. And not my specialty. <laughs> I go with, you know, mass media. Our society pushes us to buy diamond rings. And I'm happy to, that's the one path I'm happy to follow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a societal I, uh, thing. It's it's like, interesting to these, these things that we create in society. And, you know, it's a lot of it. It's funny. If you look back at the things we do today, a lot of it is, you know, out of that uh, madman era, Madison Ave ad agency, madman era, where they created yeah. all these campaigns about, you know, uh, how society should be and, you know, what American families should do and what they should buy and how they should act. And, you know, there's like still just, you know, effects of these marketing campaigns that have just ingrained themselves into our culture and our society. And, uh, just like the engagement ring is one of those examples. Absolutely. You know, I keep on waiting for a story where like, honey, will you marry me? Here is a certificate of donation to Red Cross in your name instead of a ring, right? Like that sounds cool, but who's going to do it? Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, I've never heard any, anything like that happening. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be, it would be pretty cool, but I haven't heard of any of that, right? Yeah. So, and it would take a major societal change and who's going to back that up so government is not going to spend money on marketing that uh shift from buying diamond engagement rings to donating to red cross well i think you've got a really damn good idea to pitch the red cross donations marketing team <laughs> which means red cross is funding it right so what you're suggesting is for Red Cross, instead of delivering blood, to dump a bunch of money into marketing, which they already, I, I think in the case of Red Cross, they may be doing a little too much of that. So it's it's always an argument, how much money you spend on marketing as a nonprofit versus how much you actually dedicate to the cause. And if you don't do enough marketing, well, then you don't have enough funding to attack the cause. It's yeah, chicken and egg issue. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, you brought up your your uh, Rivian. Uh, how how you liking it? I mean, I don't work for Rivian marketing department, so it's funny. I love the car, but you have to realize that if you're buying a Tesla, or if you're buying a Rivian, or if you're buying Lucid Air, or if you're buying any of these other startups. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I My first car was a beat-up, piece-of-shit Ford Tempo that I got with 160,000 miles on it. And then uh, I was driving it. I hit a pothole, and my tire fell off. <laughs> 
So I got it. No, no, that was back in Chicago. Same amount of potholes. Plenty of potholes here to go around. (laughs) But, you know, I got it towed to the nearest shop, junk shop. I got used Ford parts for a tenth of the price. As long as I owned that car, I never put anything new on it. Like replacing brake pads. Do you have any used ones? Literally, I got used brake pads. That car had years, decades of parts, experts, and everything else around it. Whereas if you're buying any of these new cars like a Rivian, you're a beta tester. Yeah, there was just a recall, wasn't there? Uh, That recall is, I think that's a marketing that recall, yeah, they came in to fix my car. It took them like a minute. It's just two bolts that they needed to check if they're tight enough. Yeah, like it the steering column would come off or something I heard, right? Not, not really. Uh, I have a more interesting problem with the most recent. So Rivian does over-the-air updates. Well, be, before you do that, I, I want to hear like why the bolts thing was a marketing stunt. You said it was a marketing thing. I think, I don't know who's marketing, but like what what happened? I got an email from Rivian uh, one day before recall. And the email was, dear customer, uh, we noticed that we were not sufficiently checking the tightness of one of the bolts. So it's no big deal. You can keep on driving. Nothing like it's not a problem, but just in case, we are here to ensure your safety. So we're going to fix it. We're going to issue a recall. This allows us to reach each and individual owner. And we want to check everybody's car. Because if they emailed and said, okay, you know what? It's no big deal. it's 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 a non-issue, but we'd like to check your car anyway. You wouldn't do anything about it. But they decided to issue a recall to get our attention as owners. They came in, they checked my bolts, both of them were tight enough. And as soon as the recall is issued, I start seeing these headlines. Like, is Rivian going out of business now that they have to recall every single car they've ever manufactured? <laughs> I saw the same headlines. What the and then fuck I clicked are you it talking and I was about? Like, like, what the hell? It's like a bolt. They tighten a bolt. <laughs> but it's funny. A couple of people stopped me on the street. And by the way, a lot of people stop you on the street with a Rivian. But a couple of people like, is your car safe to drive? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's fine. It's just fine. There is a not a very, it's not a loose bolt. It's a bolt that's not sufficient, that may be not sufficiently tight. Anyway. That sounds like a lawyer wrote that. It, it was um, the way, the, the problem versus media handling of that problem. So, you know, a, a bad news is... Or bad publicity is also publicity. 
I think the way Rivian handled the whole process is amazing. And if I wanted to attract attention to my company, it's like when you're making, uh, uh, when you when you're giving a presentation to venture capital, they tell you to put in one slide that's going to beg for a question, right? So, like Rivian showed to me as the owner of that car, amazing service, super customer support. Just, I mean. This recall, because I had a couple of other questions about the car, which I was about to tell you, uh, the way they're handling the whole thing is amazing. The customer service has been, the, the, and I don't work for them, the, their customer service has been by far better than any other uh, vendor that I've ever experienced. And I deal a lot with different vendors, Rivian makes i'm gonna say it i'm a, I'm gonna say it rivian makes me feel special like every phone call is like i'm i'm talking to you but you know me i can call you hey brian you're like hey greg what's up like you know me when i call rivian not only do they pick up right away they act like they know me and they're little even the way they talk maybe it's only the way they talk to me but my technician mike is like ah shit man all right i'm gonna try to come out as soon as i can like how's next tuesday he's coming from virginia driving all the way over here just to wow. fix my car and he's my technician you know what i mean but what i mean the the car is a beta prototype my car stopped recognizing me so I can open the vehicle remotely, like on the fob, I click the button, the car opens, but when I get in the car, it doesn't talk to my fob. It doesn't talk to my phone. I can only start it with a hardware key. And it's been three weeks now, the Rivian is trying to figure out what the hell the software issue is. Yeah, it sounds like a software issue. So, so a, normally it, uh, you should be able to start with your phone. You normally you can start it with your. So normally you get in the car once you're in the car, right? You unlocked it, you got in, and you go. And I unlock it, I get in, and I switch to drive, and it tells me identify yourself. I don't know who you are. <laughs> Does it say it like in an ominous voice? Identify well, it, it, it just it it blinks <laughs> a little. It blinks a little thing that um, I forget exact language. It's like uh, in order to start the car, you must present the valid ID. So my fob and my phone are no longer valid IDs. Only I have a hardware key. That one's a valid ID. So it is a it's a, some issue with the security protocol where outside of the car the, the car unlocking is not is on a different security protocol than a car starting which is pretty nice I guess for my safety so you can unlock the car you just can't drive it wow so you literally like this car couldn't be carjacked it's uh Right now it can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can still drive it, but they're they're like 
I have to do, there's a three-step procedure that I have to do. Yeah. My point is, like you said, how do you like it? I love it. But you have to realize that you're driving a beta prototype. It's not, there's only like 12,000 of them. And same with a Tesla. These are betas. They're a little farther along, but uh, hey, I want to I want to change gears here. Uh, so um, your business, uh, AA Plasma, right? Two A's. Yep. All right, cool. AA Plasma. Uh, your business is largely uh, grant funded or is Cibber Cibber funded? Uh, is it SBI necessarily... or Cibber? How do you say? It? <clears throat> uh, some people say SBIR. Some people the slang for it is Cibber. Okay. So talk about that. I think that's something like our this audience here is going to be largely tech entrepreneurs, uh, either you know just getting started, or a lot of them might be you know well into you know building and launching their business. Uh, probably not as many uh, you know grant funded entrepreneurs as listeners, but uh, I, I bet a lot of them don't even know about the Cibber program, what it is, how it works, and some of them may even have products or businesses that could be eligible for Cibber. Uh, can you talk about it? You know, just uh, I know I've referred a couple of people to you who are trying to figure it out. And it's like, you know, you, you've somehow like cracked the code to uh, to running a company uh, with Zipper. Well, you know, I didn't crack the code. I've been um, um, university faculty for a decade. Uh, so I guess I cracked the code over there. But the code is really simple. You know, if you want government money. There are two kinds of government funding. There is funding to do a certain very specific task. And then there is funding available where industry funding is not. And let me talk about those two separately. First one is very easy, government contracts. So uh, what is it? Govbiz dot or biz.gov, something like that. There is a website that lists, and you can Google search it. Uh, there is a website that lists all of the current available government contracts, which typically look like, you know, we need White House painted. And the government accepts bids to perform certain work. So if you're if your company, if you own a company that paints houses, there is nothing that prevents you from painting government buildings, right? But in order to paint, in order to paint, like, you know, Brian, you, uh, you used to own a house in the burbs. If you wanted to get it painted, what do you do? Call you, you call a couple of painters and you get bids. Right? Especially, okay, I mean, maybe painting a house, you call the painter, you already know. But the way government does it is they put out a bid or they put out RFP, request for proposal. And they say, we need 6,000 buildings painted. Give us your best offer. Or we'd like to purchase 1,000 pounds of bacon. So if you're a company, like if you're starting a brewery or if you own a brewery, nothing prevents you from bidding on government contracts for providing them 
60,000 barrels of beer. Matter of fact, there are many companies that live solely off federal contracts, like supplying food, munition. I mean, you're familiar with industry selling weapons. So that one, sure. yeah, defense. It, it, it's not like defense industry. So there is a, there is Lockheed Martin selling stuff to uh, Department of Defense. But there is also small companies supplying bacon so that the soldiers can have their burgers. Well, in, in my industry, I've, I have several friends who run businesses that do like IT services. So like one builds government websites, another one does SharePoint, Microsoft SharePoint implementations, you know, big company. They're like over a thousand employees do government SharePoint implementations. Yep. Uh, another one does like Tableau and data analytics and uh, Salesforce implementations for government. So, you know, it's like a whole IT industry just serving, you know, there's, Accenture Federal Services, massive, uh, massive con IT consulting company, just literally set up for servicing the government. So that type of funding is pretty straightforward. So, like I said, there are two kinds of funding. There's that. So government needs, government is building a new building and they need computers set up for 10,000 employees. That's that. That funding aside, there is funding available for things industry would not fund. Like we talked a little while ago about PFAS remediation or uh, uh, reactivating activated carbon, regenerating activated carbon. Industry is not doing that. Industry doesn't have a good technology, so there needs to be investment into innovative solutions. Government has a lot of money available for that. Uh, a lot of that funding goes through the small business innovative research programs or small business technology transfer. What's R stand for? STTR. Uh, whatever, small business technology transfer, something. Uh, so there is SBIR and STTR. That funding is not really to perform a specific task, but it is more for groundbreaking innovation. So I get a lot of questions. Hey, my company knows how to paint houses. Am I eligible for SBIRs? Not really. Unless you can, unless you develop a question that is extremely innovative, like if you want to, you know, you've observed, you have preliminary evidence that if you paint, little stripes on the buildings, then the children are three times happier going to school in that building. Like you need to have some background uh, preliminary research. So your proposal as a house painting, as a building painter, you're proposing not to paint a hundred houses, but you're proposing to develop a new painting method. That's eligible for SBARs. 
I just talked to a, a, a software company. Uh, they are developing some kind of educational solution software for universities. Are they eligible for SBARs? Well, not the way they're phrasing themselves. So if, like, all right, there is a clear problem. Uh, there is lack of underrepresented minorities entering STEM disciplines today. So if the software you're developing helps university manage current students, that's not really an SBAR grant. But if you are proposing to develop something that will increase the number of underrepresented minorities entering STEM disciplines, like you're trying to solve a problem that United States people, the citizens of United States have. And this is not a problem that universities, that a cons consumer market would invest in. So what is the percentage of underrepresented minorities entering universities? Few percent. So for university to heavily invest in increasing attendance of those, like would you put most of your marketing budget into 2% of your incoming freshmen? Probably not. So this is something that government needs to go into. My point is like, if you are, if you, if you want to provide service for money, then go for government grants. But if you have a very innovative idea, especially as a startup, and especially very innovative idea, then I would suggest looking into small business innovative research. It's innovative and research are the keywords. The, the way I've heard it described that I kind of like is that it's America's VC fund. Mm. <laughs> even, even they promote, so like NSF, says something along the lines of America VC fund. I've talked to venture capital and this is, I would say this is the fundamental distinction between VC and SBAR. Like when I talk to VC, I often say, people who know me know that I very frequently say that venture capital funding is easier than SBARs. Uh, in many ways, it is because VC, the question is very simple. How much money do you want? And when am I getting my 10x return? So if you're asking VC for $100,000, they say, okay, that's not a problem. How, when am I going to get it back? And if your answer is, well, maybe in 100 years, then the answer is no. Whereas federal government funding, they're not asking that. They're not asking when they're getting their money back. They're asking what is the impact on the society, right? So look, if I go to venture capital and I say, I'm working on developing technology to uh, clean granular activated carbon after it's been used. VC, I've talked to VCs about this technology and their question immediately, what is the size of the plant? What is the return on investment? When am I going to get my money back? And my answer is, I don't know. 
I don't have the technology yet. I don't exactly know how much it costs. I need probably five, seven years just to build a pilot plant. And as a uh, as a business guy, you're you're not the kind of guy who's just gonna like be a yes man and blow smoke and put together some like you know, lie. You know uh, over I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you know my name and my reputation, and some people call it virtue. I think that's the only thing I have. And am I going to put that on a line for a million dollars from venture capital? No, absolutely not. It's not necessary for me either. Uh, that's why, you know, it's funny. I have access to venture capital. I don't have a good enough idea that I can myself say, yes, if you give me this $10 million, I am firmly confident that we will give you $30 million back in two years. I am too early stage in many of the things that I do. This is why most of my funding is from government. I am searching, I'm spending taxpayer dollars searching for something that's not going to give 10x or 100x. It's going to be 10 million x return. Like if we are able to regenerate filter we're going to get rid of the horse manure problem. And maybe we don't need cars. Maybe we will stick with horses. That's that's where federal investment is for. So they're not like, you know, NSF as they are calling themselves uh, America's VC fund. I disagree with that statement. They're not VC. They're kind of, they're more they're more like angels. There's somebody who believes in you. They're not. So they're they're venture. They're funding ventures, but they're not funding ventures for the sake of profit. They're funding ventures for the sake of uh, societal impact. Correct. And yeah, uh, cool. also, you know, one of the venture capitalists I work with, he refuses to invest less than a million, and he refuses to to invest into market that has less than 18 billion i don't know where he got that number 18 billion in a total addressable market that's his thing whereas so when you're talking to him and your market is i don't know uh, underrepresented minority children susceptible to dementia that's a very small market it's not an 18 billion dollar market so he's not going to invest not going to invest. Whereas if your solution is innovative, then perhaps SBAR funding is the way to go. Yeah, cool. Um, so talk about like a business that, uh, that you know, somehow like their value proposition is asking a good question that's early stage, that has societal impact, that, you know, uh, probably could be a candidate for CIVR funding. Uh, how do they get started? Like, what what do they look at? Where do they, how do they educate themselves? What are the expectations? You know, talk about the different phases of Sibber. Uh, what's like the, the you know, the five, 10 minute crash course, uh, if <laughs> if there is such a thing on Sibber? Um, if the question is phrased in the way you phrased it, then I would say, 
your company is not fully ready for an, a full, complete SBAR thing. You need to better understand government. And luckily, National Science Foundation created an extremely successful program for that. The program is at least a decade old, and it is one of the most successful program within the National Science Foundation. It's called the Innovation Core, like I-C-O-R-P-S. We'll put the and, we'll put the link in the show notes for the listeners of that. Yeah, it's not a it's not an innovation corpse. It's innovation core, even though it's spelled with a P. <laughs> so say it again. What's it called? Uh, I core. It's I C O R P S. Okay. The P is silent. They make sure <laughs> it's not an I corpse. It's an I core. Uh, that program is amazing. So if you apply to the full I-Corps from the very beginning, there is I-Corps local, regional, and national. I-Corps local is when you apply for it, it's like a one day. I think it's a one day thing. Uh, very small funding, maybe, I don't know, $500. I, I, I forget the amount, small amount of money for you to travel to them and spend one day where National Science Foundation will answer the question that you just asked me. The question, how do I get started in business? How do I get started in government funding? What is government funding? What's available? Uh, how does one approach it? How how does government help small businesses? So that is that question is answered, and they pay you to come. They pay you to come. They pay for your hotel. They pay for your food, and they answer your questions. Do you have to apply to do that, or just you sign have up to apply it's... to do that? Application process is ridiculously simple. As long as you know how to write half a page. So application process is very simple. You submit your pitch and wait a little bit and you get invited to a phone call. And after the phone call, they invite you to come out. Cool. That's awesome. So the, and that's, that's regionals. So regionals is one, one or two days. Then there is, uh, or sorry, local. Local is one or two days. Then there is NSF I-Core regionals. So after you go through the local, then you can apply for regional, which is one week of pretty tough training, preparing you, asking your questions. What's your, what's your business model? What's your business proposition? Who is your target market? What's the product market fit? What does it mean they teach you what the meaning of the word product market fit? And then they put you through an exercise of identifying the market that fits your product. That's NSF regionals. Because you have to After, select which agency you're applying to in Cyber and No, this right? is all National Science Foundation. That's the okay. only agency that does it. Actually, National Institutes of Health, I believe, 
also began this program recently, but I'm not as familiar with it as I am with NSF. Is NSF the biggest uh, cyber funder or is it the DOD? Well, DOD has the most money. Uh, National science, I would say the way I would answer that question. So if your business has to do with health, you're probably better off being funded by NIH, National Institutes of Health. If your question does not have to do with health, anything else, road construction, <clears throat> space flight, math, biochemistry, but not health. So if it's health, it's NIH. If it's anything else, it's NSF. And if your business is very practical, then you go to the departments. Department of Defense, Department of Transportation, Department of Labor, Department of Education, etc. So fundamental science, National Science Foundation, health, National Institute of Health, and then there are details. So if you're more to do with standards, you go to National Institute of Standards. I forget what the T stands for, N-I-S-T, NIST. So the answer to your question is complicated. There are many details, but to begin with, go to NSF. They are the most well-established and they will guide you. But I would suggest, because the way you phrased your question, the way I heard your question is, look, I've never done this before. I don't know what to, I don't even know where to start. What do I do? Uh, there is a program for you called NSF i -Core. Go and they will answer all of your questions. Matter of fact, NSF prefers for your path to be NSF local, NSF i -Core local, NSF i -Core regional, NSF i -Core national, NSF SBIR. So NSF suggests that you, if you're starting on, if you're very early on, you do local, regional, nationals, and after that, only after you've passed all of that, you go to an SBAR submission. So if you, in other words, if you have no clue what you're doing, don't do SBAR right away. It's not that you will fail. It's just, um, it's going to be a lot more, a lot harder to do this with no knowledge. Does yeah, that, make that makes sense. sense. Everything I've seen about it, your what you're explaining makes total sense. Uh, I have one more question about it, then we can start wrapping up. Uh, so, just so people listening have a have a sense of like even what SBIR is or CIBR is, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about kind of like the phase one, the phase two, and then I think there's even like an unspoken phase three of some kind. Can you talk a little bit about what that, uh, you know, kind of like what that path looks like for getting funding through these programs? So there is phase one, phase two, continuation, phase two, phase two B, phase three, et cetera. Phase four, phase five. <laughs> uh, ideally, in a perfect world, if you have an innovative idea and some basic background 
science, some preliminary evidence that this idea has a potential to work and has a potential to impact, um, to improve the lives of US taxpayers. Then you apply for NSF phase one, or not NSF, then you apply for SBAR phase one. Phase one is designed to be proof of concept. Depending on the agency, you get anywhere from six to 18 months and anywhere from you know, 50,000 to 300,000 to test your idea. That's dollars to dollars. $300,000, yeah. Uh, so typically the number is 150,000 nine months, typically. National Science Foundation is like 225,000 12 months, but it, it's all over the place. I've seen it as low as 30 and I've seen it as high as half a million for phase one. Phase one, before phase one, you have some background and something preliminary. You cannot just come in. I I was in the shower, I came up with this idea, give me a million dollars. Typically you have something preliminary and then you get this chunk of money and chunk of time to evaluate it. And what is assumed is you will spend this money and this time fully dedicated, sleepless nights, you know, work as hard as you possibly can, as we do, to validate your idea, see if it's possible. Assuming your answer is yes. So you did all this testing and you built a prototype. Here is a prototype of what a big system might look like in the future, kind of like an alpha prototype. You apply for phase two. And maybe that prototype is like on a smaller scale, or maybe it just does a small subset of the hardest problem, or, you know, somehow like it just proves the technology is like even capable. Like if there's a key ingredient to the technology that you just can even create that key ingredient, like the, is that right of what a prototype would be? So imagine yourself saying, look, I built with with the 150,000 that you gave me, I built this prototype. And if I had a million dollars, I would build a much bigger one that would do everything. Does that make sense? Yep. Gotcha. So technically, after phase two, everything is over. Federal funding is over. So ideally, phase two is typically on the order of a million dollars and typically two years long. So you got a million dollars for two years, that's half a million a year, to build dollars, half a million dollars a year, uh, to build a pre-commercial prototype. And usually after phase two, you would go to industry or venture capital, or angel investors. Usually after phase two, the federal involvement is over. There is a possibility for something called phase 2B, or phase two continuation, or second phase two. It has different names. So it is possible in certain cases to convince the funding agency that you need additional funding. If it so, solves I'm a really sorry. big problem or if it, the problem has a lot of impact and it's really complicated, if those are kind of, those are the use cases for that continuation. Yeah. 
so typically, okay, in, in, in a regular environment, you get phase one. If you're successful with phase one, you get phase two. If you're successful with phase two, best of luck. That's a standard scenario. And then there are special cases. So in the case, for example, you know, your customer is the government. So you, you know, you have this idea of changing the way um, cybersecurity is handled in a government. And you get a phase one, phase two. And at the end of phase two, you're supposed to sell your customers the government. So that's called phase three, the so-called purchasing phase. Uh, then the government will say, okay, I'll buy it, but you only build one prototype. Maybe it's a big prototype, but it's only one. Are you able to sell to the government immediately? Or do you need to do some additional stuff before you're able to sell? So perhaps you need additional funding before you actually can ship the product. That's phase you, three. You did something like this uh, during COVID. You made something like a hundred of, uh, I, I forget what you made. You made like a hundred some boxes of something. So we never actually did a phase three. We did, we built, we manufactured a hundred units as a COVID-19 response uh, funded by Defense Logistics, but that was it, phase two. Ah, okay. So it was a direct to phase two. Sometimes you can skip phase one. So phase one is supposed to be proof of concept. You went direct to phase two because you had the relationships, they trusted your lab, and they knew that you could pull this off and they needed it fast. More importantly, we didn't need phase one because we already had the prototype. Mm, from a different, from a different uh, proof of concept. From, from a different proof of concept. Cool. So in our case, we had the prototype for disinfection of fresh produce and government needed, in case there is escalation in mask shortages, government needed to prototype a hundred machines that would disinfect face respirators, face masks. So that was a direct to phase two. Let us show that we can scale. So actually our task was to prove that the manufacturing is scalable. And we did that by providing the scale-up plan, building, executing the scale-up plan to deliver 100 units, and then providing scale-up plan for 10,000 units per month. So you built you built 100 of these units. Uh, how fast? How, how fast did you turn that around and deliver those 100 units? That's a separate discussion, but it was, uh, we were tasked, we were given a task to make from zero to make a hundred units in 45 days. The only question I asked the, 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 I asked them was, is it calendar days or business days? So that, that includes designing the units, uh, proving that they work, sourcing the materials, assembling them, building them, shipping them. Yep. And we actually, with enormous help from uh, NextFab, I'm sure, you know, everybody in Philadelphia is familiar with them. We'll put NextFab uh, in the show notes too. Yeah. So, so thank you. With enormous help from NextFab in the middle of COVID, instead of building 100 units in 45 days, 
we built 106 in 44. So yeah, we 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 did it. Somehow. Man, look at you uh, showing up the uh, showing up the 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 funders here. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was fun. It was it was uh, very challenging. A lot of luck was involved. Yeah, you showed me one of them. I was looking at this thing. It's like, you know, you, you couldn't get all the parts. So you went to like, you know, Home Depot or like different places <laughs> and bought like random things that weren't, you know, you use them for what they weren't intended for. Just so you know, like you needed to get the parts and get them out. So you built this like, you know, creative, uh, you know, box that just, you know, sourced parts from all these different places. It was fun. It was fun. Am I going to do it again? I'm going to try not to. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was very challenging, but it was uh, an interesting experience. And actually, the more I work with federal government, the more respect I gain for the government. They, they were anticipating, they were preparing for a much larger problem than COVID presented. And they, because COVID could have gotten better, faster, but it could could have gotten worse. So they were government was using small businesses to prepare a massive response. We designed manufacturing strategy because I showed you one machine out of 106 that we built. And it took us 44 days to build 106 machines. But we created a manufacturing plan for 10,000 machines per month in case the country needed it. Thankfully, country didn't need that, but we had the plan. That's cool. Well, this this is a really awesome place to wrap up today. Uh, is there anything else you want to share? Just like, you know, anything, any projects you're working on that you want to plug? Anything you want to share as a, a closing out uh, message here? Projects I want to plug. Well, it's interesting. I have the PowerPoint open and I'm editing the website right now. So I might as well plug it. Uh, we're working. Uh, we started an environmental nonprofit. I think I talked to you and your wife about it. But yeah. we actually, we went through a restructuring effort, uh, realigning creating a better direction. So what we're doing is we're trying to address the issue of carbon emissions, not by limiting emissions, but by controlling them, capturing them, and incentivizing industry to use CO2 to make some sellable products. So the nonprofit, the reason it's a nonprofit is it will support basic science that needs to be developed to incentivize industry to instead of throwing CO2 into atmosphere, give them incentive to capture it and convert it into products that they can sell. This way we think this would be, you know, providing an incentive, financial incentive to industry to capture and convert CO2 would address the environmental 
impact of it. And the nonprofit is called Zephyro for like the Western wind. Uh, it's Z-E-P-H-Y-R-O.org. It's a brand new website. It's still, it's still half broken, but but by the time the podcast is, is published, I think it will be done. Cool. Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes too. So we're going to have a a nice uh, hefty show notes here for this one with some good good links out to a bunch of places. But uh, Greg, this was awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on. You're uh, our, our uh, you know, when this goes live, you'll be our third official guest. And, uh, you know, this was uh, really cool. I appreciate you coming on today. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Pleasure. And uh, let's keep on being awesome, the both of us. Let's do it, man. <laughs> awesome. All right, Bye, Brian. Take Enjoy care. Enjoy your weekend. You too. You too.